Welcome everyone to the Pandemonium podcast, sponsored by the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. This is episode four with Dr. A.D. Ray. Just a quick introduction about Dr. Ray. She is an NIH-funded neuroscientist who has been studying cannabinoids, opioids, and their interaction for her entire career. As we'll see soon, she has a strong publication record in chronic pain, addiction, and harm reduction. Dr. Ray received her BS in psychology and her PhD in neuroscience from Washington State University and followed up on this journey by taking a postdoctoral position at Sydney University in Australia, where she was awarded a National Research Service Award from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, to study the synaptic physiology of cannabinoids and opioids. Dr. Ray continued her postdoctoral training at Columbia University, where she broadened her experience to include dynamic interactions between drug abuse and chronic pain. Dr. Ray joined the Legacy Research Institute in June of 2019, where she currently utilizes translational and clinical research approaches to further characterize the analgesic and harm reduction properties of cannabis in the context of opioid use. As you can see, Dr. Ray has an incredibly diverse and extensive background in the science of cannabis and the endocannabinoid system especially, which we'll discuss in pretty significant detail later. Later on in the podcast, we'll also discuss how she added to her academic work by co-founding a company called Smart Cannabis, which is aimed at identifying the best cannabis to increase enjoyment and personal benefit. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. A.D. Ray. Hi, everyone, and welcome. This is the podcast Pandemonium. This is episode four with Dr. A.D. Ray. Dr. Ray, we're so excited to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So one of the reasons I'm happy to talk to you today is because in a previous episode of the podcast, this I believe this is episode two, we had a clinician, Dr. Uh, Dr. Grice, Dr. Ari Grice, who spoke a lot about the practitioner side of prescribing medical cannabis. And one of the things we discussed was how do we tailor cannabis to each individual and specifically their needs? And so luckily for us, you have agreed to come on and talk because you have been at the forefront of not just our understanding of the endocannabinoid system, but also trying to understand how we can optimize CBD and THC amongst other cannabinoids to specific populations. So I want to start off by just asking you quickly, what brought you into studying this? Sure, absolutely. So I started my career in cannabis research actually as an undergraduate, and I got my PhD in psychology um, and then went on to get my, um, or I'm sorry, I got my BS in psychology and went on to get my PhD in neuroscience. And as an undergrad, I uh, volunteered in a lab that studied morphine tolerance, so opioid tolerance. And also at the time, I was spending a lot of time in Vancouver, BC, where, you know, the heroin problem was quite bad. Um, and, but the difference between what was happening in, you know, Washington and Seattle, where I was living and what was happening in Canada was that in Canada, cannabis was decriminalized. And so you have all of these folks who are opioid dependent, but freely using cannabis, you know, almost daily. And, you know, from my fundamental pharmacology knowledge going through, you know, undergrad, um, I knew that both of these things were pain relieving and they were both, you know, rewarding drugs. Um, and I was really curious about what their interaction was. And so as a very young student, I wrote some you know, summer grants to you know, study this drug interaction in the context of you know, morphine tolerance um, with the central hypothesis of if we use these things together, we can reduce opioid harm. That was the central hypothesis then, you know, 15 years ago, and it remains the central hypothesis in my academic work. So 
you know, I, I rolled all of that stuff into a PhD and then onto several postdoctoral positions. And, and now uh, I'm an early uh, career researcher at Legacy Research Institute here in Portland, Oregon. And here in my lab now, we're still looking at this drug interaction, you know, between cannabis and opioids, but now we're really focused on an inhalation model. So I've done sort of the whole gamut of, you know, the different kinds of preclinical research you can do, behavioral pharmacology, which means, you know, injecting drugs into an animal and watching it run around. Um, I've done, you know, synaptic physiology. I was trained in electrophysiology in a postdoctoral position in Australia. Um, and now actually Ari, one of your previous guests is a very close colleague of mine. And he and I have been looking at his chronic pain patients, um, collaborating on a project for the last couple of years. Um, but my laboratory here, my preclinical lab, we're looking at the inhalation model of cannabis um, and how inhaled whole plant cannabis affects opioids. So the inhalation model is particularly important because um, when you inhale cannabis, THC and other molecules go directly into the oxygenated bloodstream and go right up to the brain. Because of that, the drugs have an immediate onset. So when a patient is in severe pain, for instance, like a cancer patient with severe breakthrough pain, that immediate um, onset of the drug is incredibly important to their quality of life. They can't wait 35, 45, an hour, you know, for an edible to kick in or some other medication to kick in, that instant relief is really important. So we know going forward that for pain patients, inhalation is going to be central to their therapy. So the question is, you know, well, what, what is the safest way to inhale? Is it safer to inhale flour or oil? And how does that affect opioid, both opioid pain relief and the vulnerability to opioid abuse? So those are all all kinds of questions that we're teasing apart in the preclinical part of my lab. And then of course, in collaboration with Ari Grice, um, we're looking at how these things also play out in orthopedic pain patients. Now, um, now that you brought it up, so does it really uh, take a big difference when you're looking at CBD versus THC or pain control versus recreational use? Does the uh, form of ingestion, does it really matter to patients like our, or, or, or people who are suffering in, in a sense? Yeah, all of these things are important. Um, and I want to start off by acknowledging that everyone is different. You know, we, we put this big umbrella over all people and say, you have pain, but there are many, many, many different kinds of pain. You know, inflammatory pain is not the same as rheumatoid arthritis, is not the same as HIV-induced neuropathic pain, is not the same as diabetic neuropathic pain. You know, all of those things are different, you know, from a molecular standpoint, that literally like how the body is responding to that stimulus, as well as what kind of drugs work for that and how, how that sensation is perceived by the patient. That's a huge component, right? Everyone um, deals with their pain differently and they experience it differently. So even though we like to put this big umbrella of chronic pain over all of these things, they are very distinct and personal. And so for that reason, cannabis, you know, uh, and really any type of medicine, any pain relief needs to be personalized. It has to be, it has to work for you or else it's not working. Right. So, so taking this personalized approach, cannabis provides a ton of flexibility because we have all of these different kinds of cannabis, the mixed 
ratios of cannabinoids, the, you know, lots of different kinds of products um, that all have different onset, you know, how quickly they start working. They all have different duration, how long they last. Um, and they all have different levels of side effects. So one of the most common side effects of cannabis consumption from a patient's perspective is the impairment, you know, cognitive and motor impairment. And that's different from euphoria, which is a mood state, right? The, the sensation of this feels good. And historically, we've always tied those two things together. And we've called it intoxication or getting high. But there are really two components there. There is the, this feels good, and there's the, I can't drive. So those are two separate things that are both mediated by THC, tetrahydrocannabinol or Delta-9 THC. So- And this works through the same endocannabinoid system? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, let me back up for a moment and talk about, you know, why our bodies respond to cannabis in the first place. So inside of us, we have a system called the endogenous cannabinoid system or the endocannabinoid system. And this system is extremely old, as evolutionarily old as our endocrine system, our hormones. It's as old as our immune system. And I actually like to think of it as a hybrid between those two systems, right? We have all of this, this system is responsible for keeping all of our bodily systems in check. It's really like um, the, the balancing agent across all of our bodily systems to maintain what's called homeostasis or biological balance. So you have lots of competing processes, right? You have sometimes you need to feel hungry and other times you need to dampen down that hunger signal. Sometimes you need to feel tired and, and there's a drive to sleep and other times you need to be alert. So those kinds of opposing processes have to live in a balance called homeostasis. And the endocannabinoid system has a critical role in almost every homeostatic process we have, whether it's sleep or metabolism or hunger or pain, all of those systems that have that push-pull balance, the endocannabinoid system is in involved. So the parts of the endocannabinoid system, there's really like three key players. There are the molecules themselves. So our brain and our body produces endogenous cannabinoid molecules. The two most famous ones are anandamide and 2-AG. Um, and those guys float around in our brain float around in the rest of our body to keep all of our other bodily systems in check. So that's, that's player number one is the molecules themselves. Now they have to bind to a target, which is usually a protein. It's like a little lock that's sitting on the outside of our cells. And the molecule is a key that comes and floats along and activates that lock. And so then you have a third component, which is the enzymes that break down the molecules. And those enzymes are there as like one additional, you know, check on the whole system. You can't have too many of these molecules floating around. So those degrading enzymes break down all of our endogenous molecules. So, you know, there are lots of different kinds of molecules. There are several targets, including the CB1 receptor, which is the primary target for Delta 9 THC, the CB2 receptor, which is largely, you know, involved in our immune system and inflammation. Um, but there are lots of other, probably dozens of other targets where our endogenous molecules activate. 
So what's our, our bodies are really primed for activation by the molecules in cannabis because for, you know, millennia, you know, mammals and fish and reptiles, and nematodes, birds, everyone's had all of these endogenous molecules that have been doing those jobs already. So this would make it seem like in the future, we're going to have a lot more research that deals not just with specific pain control, but also with, let's say, GI upset or anxiety or mental health issues, because there are receptors that seem to be all over the body. Is, is that right? That's absolutely right. And in fact, there is a brand new field of medicine called endocannabinology. So these are medical yeah, doctors, <laughs> medical doctors whose specialist is the endocannabinoid system, just like you have endocrine specialists, you know, hormone specialists and immune specialists. Um, you know, there we have specialists for all the other systems in our body, but we don't yet have specialists for the endocannabinoid system because this system was only recently discovered. It wasn't until the 1990s, really, that we really had an idea that this system existed. Whereas like our visual system, we had all of that stuff figured out like more than a century ago, you know? So we're really, this is a, a very new field and it's a really exciting field because it's so young and there's so much work to do. I find it incredibly, you know, exciting, but also kind of hilarious that this system that has been in our bodies for so long and has evolved to protect us and to maintain our homeostasis is so young and we are learning mm -hmm. so much about it. But I, I, I did want to ask you because we do have naturally occurring uh, cannabinoids in our body. You said in, in uh, 2-AG and inanimide, right? Is that correct? That's right. So are there any um, pharmacological strategies to kind of naturally increase those besides for synthetically uh, targeting those receptors? Kind of like yes. you know, we have serotonin reuptake inhibitors. It's kind of like a mm -hmm. similar thing to that. There are. I'm really glad you asked that question. So, um, you know, one of, so let, I'll back up for just a moment and say part of the reason that we haven't understood the endocannabinoid system, the way that we've understood all of these other systems is because of prohibition right? There's, we, we have not been able to dedicate all of the funding and the time and the research to characterizing this system because of the demonization of the plant. Um, so you're absolutely right in that, you know, these endogenous molecules were, if, if they're already pain relieving, why don't we just boost their levels? And there are ways that we can do that, um, both naturally and sort of from a pharmaceutical standpoint. Um, so naturally, there are lots of ways to boost up the endocannabinoid system by exercise, acupuncture, healthy balanced diet that has lots of fatty acids in it because um, those long chain omega you know, fatty acids are the building blocks for the endocannabinoids themselves. So if your diet is deficient in those fatty molecules, it's gonna have a really hard time synthesizing those molecules. So those are all things that sort of mimic or support the endogenous cannabinoid system itself. Um, and then, you know, because of, again, because of prohibition, you know, researchers were trying to get around this problem and say, okay, well, if we can't mess with cannabinoids themselves, then how can we boost the body's endogenous cannabinoids? And so they did this by creating drugs that target those degradating enzymes. So if you imagine this is like a little Pac-Man going around and chomping up the little white dots. So if you turn off the Pac-Man, if you get rid of it, then you get lots more white dots. The problem is when we take that strategy from a pharmaceutical perspective, it makes people really sick. 
this, these kinds of drugs went all the way through clinical trials and got to, you know, some latter stages. And there were some really severe side effects like depression and suicidal thoughts. So it turns out that that particular strategy has not proven to be very beneficial because the side effects are so severe. We need that that balance of those degradative enzymes because they have such important jobs that we can't um, we can't really selectively um, just use that strategy to turn off pain because it, it it has it, it has too broad of an application in mammalian biology. So yeah, now we're left with okay, if that doesn't work, then we've just got to get some cannabinoids into the brain and turn off pain. So there's you asked before about all of these different molecules that the plant produces, the two most famous of which being THC, the one that gets you high, and CBD, the one that doesn't. And so, you know, the cannabis plant, and there are many different types of cannabis, some cannabis plants produce almost no THC. We call those cannabis plants hemp. Some produce only THC and no CBD at all. And those are the ones that you know, we typically think of in a recreational market or in the legacy you know, prohibition market. And then now there are plants that have all kinds of ratios of THC and CBD and lots of other cannabinoids that we haven't ever talked about before, such as CBG, cannabigerol. Um, but in total, you know, there are more than 115 different cannabinoids. And in addition to those, the plant produces scores of other biologically active molecules like terpenes, terpenoids, which also have anti-inflammatory and antioxidative properties, um, flavonoids, you know, there's tons of stuff in there. And all of these things, especially when a patient is consuming a whole plant preparation, they're getting all that stuff at the same time. So, the, the, from my perspective, you know, I've been studying a region of the brain called the periaqueductal gray, which is a, sort of the brain's pain headquarters. So ever since the time I was an undergrad, I've been looking at this brain's pain headquarters. And it turns out that THC, when binding to the CB1 receptor, that's what produces pain relief. And it does so in a way that is shockingly similar to the way that opioids activate mu opioid receptor in the same brain pain uh, you know, region. So the, in order to have a really strong degree of pain relief, you've gotta get some THC into the brain to activate those CB1 receptors in this midbrain region, the PKG. Um, that works in conjunction with opioid receptors as well. Yeah, and so pain relief. Exactly. And the 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 problem with the opioid receptors is that when you consume opioids, those opioid receptors aren't just in the PAG, they're also in your reward pathway, just like CB1 receptors are. And they're also in the brainstem where your brainstem is controlling your breathing. And so for people who have a fatal overdose on opioids, yeah, they've got opioids in their PAG, they have no pain. Yeah, they've got opioids in their, in their reward pathway, they have euphoria, but they also have opioids in their brainstem and it turns off their respiration and they die. And so that's the difference between CB1 agonists like THC and these opioids is that THC can't turn off respiration. You can't die from respiratory depression by consuming cannabis. Um, that's just, they, there are no receptors there. It doesn't work. And so, you know, the, the other thing too is that opioids really hijack 
the, um, the reward system. And although THC and cannabis are rewarding, they feel good, um, they can be abused. It doesn't hijack the brain to the degree that opioids do. And do we see kind of a trailing off effect like we see with opioids or a certain amount of time where you have to take more and more opioids to kind of provide the same relief? Now that we know that THC and CBD have a synergistic effect with, with uh, opioids, do we also see the same decline over time or do we not? There's, there's a number of issues that you've just brought up, all of which are somewhat independent. So that opioid-induced hyperalgesia, that is opioids making pain worse, that doesn't appear to happen with cannabis. Um, it, although there are a certain subset of patients who will say, it, it in general, THC agitates me, and in that agitated state, I feel more pain. Um, but it's not the same kind of phenomenon that people report with opioid-induced hyperalgesia, opioids making pain worse. Um, there are some patients for whom THC and cannabis products, you know, they don't respond very well, and they get, they feel agitated, and they, the side effects aren't tolerable. And one of those effects may be a more attention to the pain or, or you know, turning up the pain, but it's, it's not as well characterized as that, you know, straight up opioid induced hyperalgesia. In terms of synergy, synergy is when you use two molecules at the same time and two plus two doesn't equal four, it equals seven. So this is a greater than additive effect. And for sure, THC and almost every opioid we've studied, there is an acute synergistic effect. That means when you have both in the body at the same time, you have combined effects so that the pain relief is greater than anticipated from either one of those molecules alone, which is amazing because if you can take advantage of that synergy, then you can reduce the amount of opioids you need to achieve the exact same pain relief, which is amazing. Because anything, any strategy that we can do to get people to lower the opioid doses, that is critical. That's what's going to keep people alive. And indeed, that's what we see. When a state brings a medical cannabis law online, we see 25% fewer opioid overdoses. When a, you know, um, when a, a cannabis a law comes online, we see far fewer prescriptions written for opioids. Um, even people who are abusing illicit opioids, if they are cannabis users, they have fewer fatal and non-fatal overdoses. So there's clearly a beneficial interaction which is able to allow people to reduce their opioid consumption, which is truly critical. Now, you mentioned CBD as well, um, and CBD hasn't proven to be synergistic necessarily with opioids. It's a lot more complicated and messy. Um, and I like to think of CBD as like ibuprofen on steroids, you know, like it's, it is pain relieving, but not in the way that opioids are. It really is more of an anti-inflammatory, you know, messy molecule. It has, you know, 15 plus mechanisms of action. It's not as straight up pain relieving as THC is. That's so interesting because I feel like a lot of people promote uh, CBD sometimes uh, incorrectly in terms of what could be more beneficial to your pain. Depending on the, right, it depends on the pain. One hundred percent. What can you tell me about that? Like, is there is there like a certain delineation that we know of between what's like chronic malignant pain, non malignant pain, acute pain, in which THC or CBD might be better? 
Yeah. Um, the one thing I will give CBD, it is um, very likely that it has a profound placebo effect, <laughs> which I'm all about. I am all about a drug that does absolutely nothing except make you feel better. Um, so, you know, again, because of prohibition, we haven't had randomized placebo controlled gold standard clinical trials to rule out the magnitude of the placebo effect in CBD. Now, that said, I have seen with my own eyes the knuckles of patients with rheumatoid arthritis prior to and after using a topical CBD, you know, product, rubbing it into their joints and onto their skin, you know, every couple of hours. And you don't need to be a rheumatologist to look at these people's hands and go, yeah, you must feel better. Right. So there are definitely some cases, some people, some kinds of pain for which CBD is going to be a profoundly useful molecule. The other really great thing about it is that it's so dang safe, right? You can take so much of it. And, you know, especially compared to the other pain management strategies we have nowadays. Yes. So, you know, you can take so much of it. And the worst things that can happen to you at the, at the very top end of the dose ranges is it might interact with your other medications, which is really important. And if you're on other medications, you should talk to your doctor about CBD. Um, and it might make you sleepy. And, and at the very tail end, you might have some GI discomfort um, in terms of you know diarrhea, not the constipation. It's like the opposite of opioids, um, which is, again, you know one of the reasons that especially geriatric patients don't like to use opioids is because of all of the GI side effects. So we don't see that with CBD or cannabis. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that in the long run, we're going to have certain types of pain or certain types of patients who are able to use CBD very therapeutically, but we're going to need a whole lot of clinical trials to see how big the placebo effect is and for which indications it's going to be the most useful. And do you think we're heading in that direction? I know with the passage of the MORE Act we just heard about, which is going to help a lot with decriminalization, allowing us to study it. Are we kind of following in the footsteps of Canada what they have already accomplished in that regard and, and are we turning the right page? Yeah, in the long term, yes. And right now, it is possible to do hemp-derived CBD trials, clinical trials. The 2018 Farm Bill, you know, expanded access to this molecule. So we are able to use it in a clinical trial settings. But of course, everything takes time. So, you know, in 2018, the Farm Bill passes, then we have to like, set up the studies, and then we recruit patients, and then you actually do the study, and then you publish the study. It's, it's a really long process. So I guarantee in about three years, you know, maybe two years, we're going to see an explosion of CBD clinical trials for this, that, and the other. So yeah, we're already on our way with hemp-derived CBD products, which is amazing. It's super long overdue um, for such a safe, you know, profoundly therapeutic molecule. Um, and, and you're right that there is, there are a number of le legislative agendas at the federal level, which would profoundly change the, the research landscape. And, and it is inevitable. That is the direction we're going. It's just a matter of, is the attorney general going to do it? Is Congress going to do it? You know, because even with the MORE Act, we've still got to get past the Senate, um, which, you know, this is quite a partisan issue. You would think that pain relief and opioid reduction and, you know, people's well-being, you wouldn't think that would be partisan, but, you know, it is falling along those lines. So we'll see what happens with the MORE Act. But yeah, we're, we're going there eventually.
So Dr. Ray, I just want to transition a bit to talk about your extracurricular interests and specifically about your company, Smart Cannabis. Can you talk a bit about that realm of cannabis research? The, the purpose of the work that I do outside of academia is really to dispel all of the myths that we have about cannabis, right? There are clinical trials and there's the whole medical research system that will do its job in defining what kinds of cannabis are right for this kind of indication, how many times per day, how many milligrams of THC, all that kind of stuff. But one really critical, important you know, thing that we talked about a little bit earlier was the, the element of personalization. So, you know, uh, all the people that have done clinical trials with whole plant cannabis have had to uh, appeal to the FDA saying, hey, we have to allow patients to self-titrate. What that means is they have to be able to determine for themselves, experiment from within themselves to see how much they can tolerate um, while achieving that balance of, um, of wanted effects and avoiding unwanted effects like you know, impairment. And so that level of personalization um, is really important. So, you know, the, the work that I do, you know, sort of, it's not necessarily outside of academia, but it has more of an adult use focus. So the work that we're doing with Smart Cannabis really has nothing to do with pain relief or clinical trials or anything like that. What it's really about is empowering people to make evidence-based decisions about their personal use of cannabis. And so we do that by, um, you know, using similar methods, right? We do a double blind analysis of the effects of whole plant cannabis in healthy adult people to ask a very easy question, which is how did it make you feel, right? And so when we can strip the label off, when we can remove um, the bias for how much THC is in there, who produced the flower, what region it was produced in, when we take the label off and we just say, how does this make you feel? We find some really interesting things that dispel a lot of the myths that we're carrying around about cannabis. Um, right now, there is a myth that the most potent cannabis with the most THC is the most valuable and the most enjoyable. All of those things are incorrect. THC does produce intoxication. So the more THC, the more intoxicated you feel. But intoxication and enjoyment are two totally different things because you can very much be too high and not enjoy it, right? And so our work is really dispelling that myth and, and educating consumers so that they can understand, okay, you don't have to belly up to the bar and take a shot, right? Because that's essentially what we're doing by buying the most potent THC product we can find. Because our evidence tells us that there is no relationship between THC potency and enjoyment. There is equal amount of enjoyment in hemp and 30% frankenflowers, but if you just have to allow yourself the opportunity to set your biases aside and stay within the therapeutic window of, of even recreational cannabis. And what I mean by that is you have to have enough THC to feel something, right? So you get up into that window, but if you have too much THC, the balance of bad effects versus good effects gets out of control. 
So in that nice little window in the green zone, you have enough THC to feel something, but not so much that you start feeling bad. And so that, that therapeutic window is something we talk about all the time with every kind of medication we have. What's the right dose for this patient, right? And it's the exact same thing if you just think about enjoyment as a, you know, as a medical effect, you know, essentially. And so giving people tools to empower themselves to buy things that will increase enjoyment and reduce those negative side effects. The reason I'm really passionate about that work is because the, the, all of the story tells us that a moderate approach to cannabis consumption provides both the most enjoyment and the least amount of risks. Because we know that potent products, frequent use of high THC products are associated with negative things like psychotic episodes and acute overdose and hyperemesis, right? This is the, the cyclic vomiting syndrome. So if we can reduce how much THC people are consuming, give them other tools to make evidence-based decisions about what's right for them, then we can allow people to engage with this plant from both, a, you know, anywhere along the spectrum of medical and personal use in a way um, that's sustainable. That's fascinating. First of all, I think that's incredibly amazing, not just from a research perspective, but also a stigma perspective. I think it's incredibly important for people to understand that there are certain ways that we can uh, better pursue a healthy mental understanding of what you know pain control could be like or just recreational use. So I applaud you for doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious, do you think there's going to be a future where maybe you'll see products, but it's it's more geared towards this use and then you know even subdivided that between you know certain patients need x amount of THC versus other uh, synthetic cannabinoids. So is it going to be tailored to individual patients or individual people? Yeah, I think that all of those things are true. I think that there are going to be certain patients who have a very narrow need and they require a very specific thing for that very narrow need, right? So for instance, our epilepsy patients, we know that cannabidiol CBD is profoundly good at you know, limiting their seizures. So they need pure CBD, right? That's a great example of a narrow pharmaceutical kind of cannabis preparation. We're always gonna have those you know, narrow things, but also, We are going, there are so many different types of cannabis out there with a huge variety of all of these plant derived molecules um, that that we're going to have decades of research and self experimentation and very carefully recording the results of that experimentation in order to, to start to pick out like, okay, are there any phenotypes of cannabis which are specifically good for for pain or or you know sleep or anxiety or is it just about getting the right ratio um, by the right administration method for you and it's probably going to be all of those things how is that working in your uh in your state is it something that's easy to do uh research wise is there any irb that needs to be approved is this, it sounds very much like, like a clinical trial, but, you know, kind of more free form. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about the, the adult use work that we're doing is that it's technically not research (laughs) because all it is, is that we're, we're mining an anonymous database, right? And whenever you're, there's totally anonymous data, there's no information about the person who consumed that product. Um, That's not considered human research. Um, Moreover, the intent of that, you know, 
project wasn't research. It, it's a cannabis cup. It's a weed cup. Right. right? And so it, that isn't, there's no IRB involved in that because it's not technically human research. Um, you know, going forward, of course, when we have the opportunity to do randomized clinical trials and, and, and we're, you know, all of these federal barriers to research are removed, then we'll be able to do some really cool things in a different structure. Um, and, and there, you know, because of prohibition, my colleagues and I have had to get very creative about how we go about understanding real world cannabis, which is completely different than the cannabis that's provided for research by the US federal government. So for instance, there's a, some, um, a group in Colorado who has you know, the Canavan, which is essentially a mobile laboratory because it, right now this is gonna sound insane, but it's illegal. Right. This is the only opportunity they have to do this, right? Yeah, exactly. It's illegal for a researcher to take a cannabis product from a legal state market and bring it into the laboratory and give it to people and and watch what happens to them. So what this group has to do is let the research participant consume the product in their home. They pull the van up in front of their house and then the person, you know, smokes a joint or does a dab or whatever and comes and jumps in the mobile laboratory and that's where they do all of the measurements of how it's affecting their thinking and their memory and all reaction time and all that kind of stuff so you know when when federal prohibition is no longer a barrier to research then we'll be able to dig in and do some increasingly interesting things it sounds fascinating and i'm really excited for you guys and i'm looking forward to seeing those results how long do you think just to close out if we can um, or as time winds down excuse me um how far out do you think we are from this type of results being out there in the public view, assuming everything goes well according to plan legalization wise. Um, do you see, you know, people in the near future, maybe within our lifetime, who can go to a dispensary and get something tailor made specifically to them? Yeah, but it's also going to take iteration. You know, we have the ability to do that right now. You know, if we give a person a choice of, you know, or they choose five products or seven products, whatever. And, you know, especially if they're able to remove the label and remove their own bias, you know, they can go through those products and, you know, mindfully consume them and check in on their symptoms and say, okay, products A, B, and C didn't work at all, but product D worked the best. Okay, great. So what was it about product D? You know, what were the ratios of cannabinoids? Um, what, you know, what terpenes were expressed? You know, what, what, what were the features of that product? And let's get similar products to that. And that's, you know, now create another you know, sample of five, you know, D like flowers or products or whatever. Um, and let's, you know, hone in on the features of that product that might be the most useful for that, you know, for that use or for that symptom. So we have the ability to do that now. It's just a matter of getting that technology and the feedback um, and the sort of legal mechanisms um, out of the way so that we can execute a project like that. So for instance, you know, we know that this, the blinded component is really important because THC and cannabis is essentially a very mild psychedelic drug. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you record the brain activity of a person on cannabis, it's similar to the brain activity of a person on other classic psychedelic drugs like psilocybin and LSD in that it shuts down the brain's autopilot, the default mode network, and it activates other brain areas that aren't normally activated in you know normal waking states of consciousness. And what we know about the psychedelics is that the expectation, the mindset, and the setting 
where the drug is consumed, both have a profound impact on the effects of the drug. And we're finding that that's very similar with cannabis. So if a person goes into it expecting this is going to relieve my pain, this is going to make me feel relaxed, lo and behold, that's what it does. It is mind manifesting in that manner. The set and the setting of cannabis use are as equally important as the substance itself. So to some degree, yes, I do think that we're going to have some products that are very tailored either for a specific use or a specific person, but we can't ever let go of the power of our expectation of our huge cognitive capacity to set up an experience for ourselves. That's always going to matter. I agree. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's incredibly exciting for the near future. And I, I personally, I'm coming in a bit, I'm a bit biased here because I think that there is so much to the opioid epidemic that we're learning now that we have alternatives to opioids. And I was saying in previous podcast episodes that the education is is extremely lacking. And I think once we have a, a better understanding of the system mm-hmm. that's been around forever, we can really use it to our advantage. Um, is there a way people, I, I know you said before that- I was just going to add one thing really briefly. You brought up something really important, which is this educational component. You know, what we really messed up with, with the opioid ed- epidemic was we never told our patients, hey, this stuff is habit forming. You should take regular breaks to manage your tolerance because your body will develop tolerance. So we really need to manage that tolerance to keep you from steadily increasing your doses because when you increase your dose, you increase your risk. Right now, we have the opportunity to say to our patients, hey, cannabis is habit forming. It does make you feel good. If you repeatedly use it, your body will develop tolerance. You need to manage your tolerance by taking regular breaks. So this is this is an opportunity for us to not repeat the mistakes of the opioid epidemic directly through patient education, specifically with managing tolerance, taking regular breaks so that we can avoid all of that dose escalation and physical dependence. And I think one thing that adds to it, if I could just add to it, is that it's 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 decentralized. Before we were seeing one company who was targeting one specific drug, which caused a huge problem in this country. And this seems to be everyone mm-hmm. taking a step back. We've had to work through prohibition for a long time. And now we're starting to edge yeah. into our understanding a bit better. Is there a way, so you were saying before that you're still doing some research in your in your lab. Are there other ways people can reach out to you to get a better understanding of what your work is and your company's smart cannabis or to support you in any way? Yeah, absolutely. Probably the, the easiest way to reach me is at 80 at smartcannabis.life. Um, that's that's the most direct, I'm, I'm always there. Um, but you can also you know, Google Legacy Research Institute here in Portland, um, and you can see all of the work that's being done by all of our fine principal investigators, myself included. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I can spend literally three and a half hours talking about just the, uh, <laughs> the endocannabinoid system. So I appreciate you summarizing that very well. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If I could just have one minute of your time, I'd like to let you know of the sponsor of the podcast, the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. This foundation is a 501c3 non-for-profit organization. It's a wonderful foundation dedicated to providing resources and insight into the opioid epidemic, as well as who it affects and how we're addressing the issue. The objectives of the organization are threefold. The first is to raise awareness in the lay and medical communities of the risks and benefits of safe opioid use. The second is to educate patients, physicians, and policymakers 
on safe opioid use after injuries and surgeries, and the third is to support research and educational efforts aimed at improving and innovating pain management strategies that can result in decreased opioid use and advance alternatives to opioids. If this sounds like something you would be interested in supporting, please visit rothmanopioid.org and see the tab to donate. Thank you so much, and we appreciate your support.